Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application, and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have interactive questions available for individual reflection or small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we are going to begin a short series on the parables found in Luke chapter 15. The most famous of the three parables you'll find in that chapter is typically referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. It is the third of the three parables. We'll be looking at the first one today. It's important to note that Jesus taught in parables, quite often, actually. So we ask, what is a parable? Well, I'm glad you asked. They are short stories. Parables involve the literary device of comparison, taking something that is known and setting it alongside to something that is more unknown in order to bring out truths regarding the unknown. Jesus' parables were stories using culturally familiar characters and settings. So we are presented in his stories with images of farmers and fishermen, crops and pearls and workers and landowners and masters and slaves and young maidens and sons and kings and sheep and banquets and weddings and so forth. The stories are set in typical Middle Eastern culture where aspects of honor and shame are prevalent. And this is why we have spent the last few podcasts talking about these honor-shame distinctions and noting how a basic understanding of this helps to shed light when interpreting passages. And that will indeed be the case with all three of our parables. It is also important to note that it is through these kind of stories that serious theology is being taught. Sometimes we may think about Jesus as, you know, the open one with open-toed sandals and long, soft hair telling cute stories. Nice Jesus, and it's Paul and others who lay out more serious propositional theology in the epistles. The teachings of Jesus are every bit as theological as Paul but they come in a bit of a different style. Eastern biblical theologians love to speak in pictures and use metaphors to convey theological truths. They create meaning via, by way of creative use of metaphor and story. So it was very common, a common teaching mechanism, and Jesus is an excellent teacher within that style. In this set of the three parables, Jesus is doing some very serious teaching by way of these three picture stories. From these stories, Jesus will show us what repentance is, what love looks like, what joy is about, and about relationships. All good stuff. So we begin this week by looking at Luke chapter 15, and we'll look at verses 1 through 7 today, and the first of the three parables that go together. So if we go to Luke chapter 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, spoke this parable to them, the Pharisees. So this is the setting, and we see now what's going on by way of context. Jesus is sharing a meal with sinners and tax collectors. Now, remember, culturally, table fellowship was an important thing, especially, again, in this Middle Eastern culture where uh, that places a high premium on hospitality. Uh, One quote I had is, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. 
It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life, quoting uh, quoting from Jeremiah, a more ancient um, scholar. It involved uh, friendship, togetherness, communion, relationship, acceptance. A nobleman may decide to feed variously uh, maybe uh, unfortunate people once in a while, but he would never actually eat with them. So here's Jesus eating with them. Who's at this table? The diners who are at the table. Well, we know it's Jesus, and thus for his disciples, and even perhaps others of his followers. The text mentions sinners, and it says all the sinners, which, by the way, is Middle Eastern hyperbole. It simply means many. Um, like uh, uh, the tax collectors were the next group. Tax collectors, they are the collaborators with the enemy. They are the ones that were uh, Jewish, Roman, excuse me, Jewish, uh, uh, Israel citizens, Israeli citizens in league with the Roman occupiers, however, helping them, helping them financially benefit uh, by taking the taxes and, you know, it's was seen as traitorous. So the tax collectors who were Jews working for the Romans, um, you know, think like the French collaborators in France when the Nazis came and occupied France. They were really uh, seen as turncoats and despised. So we have sinners and tax collectors. And we see, though, that they are also, there's movement toward Jesus. It says the sinners and the tax collectors drew near to him, to hear him. They drew near to him to hear him. And this is, uh, this is describing them. So he's like a magnet, and they are coming to hear him. Now, I know the Pharisees of that day were like the religious crowd. They would be kind of like the religious crowd in our day. And we could maybe, uh, the religious crowd in our day, we could hear them saying things like, well, you know, they're not drawing near to us because we're telling them the truth. And so, you know, Jesus, he must be preaching the sermonettes for Christianettes and, you know, soft tones tickling their ears. But we got the meat. We got the hard truth. We study the scriptures and sinners can't handle that. They don't want the truth. They're losers and sinners and they're just, you know, softy messages and I'm sure the Pharisees thought all sorts of things like that to delegitimize what was going on. Jesus is not, however, um, doing that. He's also not partying with the sinners. Sometimes we hear how he's just partying with sinners. You know, you see, think like he's slapping a waitress on the fanny or laughing at dirty jokes or having a, you know, drinking. Or That's the impression that sometimes we get. No, 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 no. Jesus is holy. He's God. So he's not mixing it up in that way at all. But what's different is he doesn't hate the sinners. In fact, he loves them. He's talking to them. He doesn't ignore them. He shows interest in them. So he doesn't get in the ditch and roll around in the ditch with them. Rather, he stands at the top of the ditch and appeals to those in the ditch, and they may come out and then engage and hear and have a non-ditch conversation with Jesus. So he's considered a friend of sinners, and the Pharisees are seeing this, and they are a by what Jesus is doing in this table fellowship that's going on, and they complain about it. Verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes complained. This man eats with sinners and uh, receives sinners and eats with them. Man, if he was really from God, he would avoid those unclean sinners. That's their first premise. And actually, if he was really from God, secondly, then he'd be eating with us, not them. He's not associating with us. So either he's not of God, he's an imposter, or there's something wrong with us. Well, obviously we know how they viewed that. It's not them. So clearly Jesus is the problem. The Pharisees had a, some very non-supernatural or wrong viewpoints. The first one was towards sinners. Edersheim, uh, uh, another um, 
scholar in the New Testament times, says, uh, quoting the Pharisees, he's saying, there, one of the Pharisees was quoted as saying, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. In other words, God doesn't like the sinners and the failures and the broken. Nope, not at all. He celebrates when they finally go away. That's how they saw it. Jesus, though, is the one welcoming them. They also had a wrong view not only towards sinners, but they had a wrong view about God and his love, God's love. See, theirs is the typical view of all religions, relating to God via dogma and ritual and doing. Do good, God likes you more. Do bad, and you, well, careful, you could be cut off. God's frowning on you. Do more, try harder, and then God will smile on you. God's love is seen much like human love then. It's strictly merit-based. You know, there was a debate back in 2015 between a known, a noted Christian apologist named William Lane Craig and a Muslim scholar named Shabir Ali. And the discussion turned to Allah's love in the Quran. This is how uh, William Lane Craig actually described it. He said, according to the Quran, God's mercy is conditional. If you believe and do righteous deeds, then God can be counted on to overlook your sins and reward your good works. Thus, the Quran promises that when you work, God will surely see your work. Every soul will be paid in full for what it has earned. According to the Quran, he went on, God's love is preserved only for those who earn it. To those who believe and do righteousness, then God will assign love. So the Quran assures us of God's love for the God-fearing and the good-doers, but he does has no love for sinners and unbelievers. In the Islamic conception, God is not all-loving. His love is partial and has to be earned. The Muslim God loves only those who first love him. So after saying all that, Shabir, Shabir Ali says, You really want God to love you? Come back to the right path. God does not love sinners who refuse to change. And so he's basically agreeing with everything William Lane Craig said. So God's love is conditional, partial, and selective. So the Pharisees here in Jesus' time already had a Muslim-oriented view about sinners and God's love long before uh, the Muslim religion even was founded, 600 years earlier. Because you know what? This isn't even unique to 600 years earlier. This thinking goes all the way back to the garden and to Cain. Merit-based love starts in the human heart with sin and with Cain. Cain came to God on the basis of his best, his good intentions, his hustle. And God said, no, you come on the basis of a sacrifice, a substitute. That's the way I do it. Well, this is common all over the world. We typically have humans reasoning upward to God through their own mesh of thinking. And it's wrong, thoroughly, totally, utterly wrong. There is a radical nature of God's love that is not merit-based. His love is not merit-based. It is based on God himself. He is love. God is love. It radiates out from him. It defines him. And that is the love he has, has towards others. The Greek word is, sometimes, is, uh, is agape, and sometimes we refer to that as really the word that really describes God's love for us. What is it? Well, according to the Bauer Donker Arndt Gingrich uh, lexicon, a very important one, agape is defined as the quality of warm regard for interest in another, esteem and affection. In the Launaida Greek-English lexicon, we read, agape is to have love for someone or something based on sincere appreciation and high regard, to regard with affection. 
Zariaris, the complete word study dictionary, says love is affectionate regard, goodwill, benevolence. And it's with God, it's reference toward man. Another um, the lexicon, the Balzhorst Schneider Gerhardt lexicon, says love is in the sense of placing a high value upon some person or thing and receiving them with favor. And finally, the Ernst James Theological Lexicon of the New Testament says love that agape is a love that seeks to be expressed. So let's just round those things up. It's an interest in another. It is a high regard for the other. It is an affectionate regard for the other. It is a warm regard for the other. It is putting a high value on the other. And it is a love that seeks to be expressed. And that is not merit-based. None of it. In fact, God's love is expressed. And one of the best verses to remind us of that is Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, undeserving and not meriting, the verse ends, Christ died for us. God has such a value on you and I and places such a regard upon us that he has Christ come and die in our place, paying for our sin, receiving the wrath of sin, receiving God's justice. Then he can cry out, it is finished. This is is God's love. And so this is Jesus. Now, thinking of our parable, back to our scene here, he is expressing this kind of love to these individuals, these sinners. And these are Jews. These sinners and tax collectors are fellow Jews, but they're not being faithful to the covenant. And the complaining Pharisees prompt Jesus then to share these stories. In verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. So remember, these parables are specifically addressed to the Pharisees, and what prompted it is their, their dislike or a disapproval of how Jesus interacts with sinners. They do not agree with how they're going to view sinners and they are self-righteous. And so Jesus speaks the parables to them, and that is the context. Now, in the three parables, we'll see that in each of them, something is lost, something is found, there's repentance, and there's rejoicing in community. The first two stories we'll see in just a second. The first one, they, they, the first two, though, they open up with rhetorical questions that engage the audience. And each story is going to challenge the Pharisees regarding their view of the sinners. The first one is about a hundred sheep and will emphasize the faithfulness of the shepherd. The second one is about ten coins. It's going to involve the value of the coins. The third one is about two sons. It's going to emphasize the love of the father. So we finally get to our first of the three parables we'll look at only this one today verses four through seven and here it is luke 15 four through seven what man of you having a hundred sheep if he loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it and when he has found it he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them rejoice with me for i have found my sheep which was lost i say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance he's addressing the pharisees again and the first thing he does is he likens them to shepherds what man of you having a hundred sheep and right away he's he's got them angry because Pharisees, they're going to be indignant right off the bat. Of course we don't have a hundred sheep. We're not shepherds. We are spiritually pure and clean. 
the story's not starting out well because you see shepherding is a trade that Jewish oral law discouraged. We discourage people from becoming shepherds because it's hard to stay kosher pure <laughs> as a shepherd. And so that was their emphasis. And not only that, but this shepherd's not even a very good one. Which shepherd loses one of his sheep? And this is, again, our honor-shame structure helps us understand that uh, you don't do that in this way. You don't acknowledge blame for anything in that structure. You would say something like this. You would never say, I've lost one of my sheep. You would say, the sheep went from me. So here, though, the sheep, the shepherd has lost one of his sheep. And so this is a, like a, a, an admission, and that would get a frown right away, too. So Jesus is directly asking them this question as if they were shepherds. But he's doing that for a reason, because there are several Old Testament passages that refer to Israel as sheep without a shepherd, and referring them to spiritual leaders. And the Pharisees are then are the spiritual leaders. They are then the shepherds of Israel, as that's a term that's used biblically from time to time as shepherding, overseeing the, 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 the flock of Israel. And you shepherds have lost some sheep. Well, the shepherd loses one sheep, we read, and seeks it until he finds it. He's going to leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one, the one which is lost, until he finds it. This is very personal. He loses the one. This is the um, the same word that we're going to see again <clears throat> in verse 6, but it's used twice, lost, or some, loses or lost. Used twice in the and uh, also in this parable, and it's also used twice in the next parable, and it's used three times in the parable of the younger son. So in this chapter, seven times. So here we see clearly an emphasis: the idea of being lost is reinforced. However, by the solution, we're going to see it's to be found. So three times you're going to see in this parable alone the word "found." So he loses the sheep, and he goes after the one which is lost. The sheep caused the problem. It's an unworthy sheep. It got lost. But notice he seeks the one. This is personal. So again, we're getting this loses one in verse four, goes after the one again in verse four, personal, until giving a time element. But actually, technically, this infers the time element infers a probable outcome. He searches until the probable hopeful outcome. And when he has found it, then the goal, which is the, of the search, then he takes that one sheep when he has found it and lays it on his shoulders, personal again. So the shepherd is looking for that one sheep, finds that one sheep, takes that one sheep and lays it on his shoulders. And then we see that when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The shepherd's rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. The shepherd apparently carries the sheep back, not to the field, but to his home. Now, this is not what one would expect. This is a surprise element. No longer we have a sheep uh, in the field with others. Now it's with the shepherd in his very home. And so there's going to be a celebration. Why the, the search? Because, well, sheep are defenseless and helpless animals. They need a shepherd or they will not survive. So the shepherd has the responsibility to take care of the sheep. And that is all implied in being a shepherd. So being a good shepherd involves faithfulness to the care of the sheep. And the integrity of the shepherd is on the line if a sheep is lost. 
So faithfulness is the key. The shepherd seeks until he finds the sheep. The goal is in view, and it's a very real effort. Now, I can illustrate this with a story. Almost a year ago exactly, in 2019, a woman named Carol King from the state of Washington was on vacation with her husband in Montana and their border collie dog named Katie. And they left their hotel room one evening to go out to dinner, and there was a storm, and the dog was left back in the room, and somehow that dog got out and became lost, and they could not find that lost dog. The hotel clerk helped make a couple of flyers and things, and the husband eventually went back to Washington to to go back, you know, their vacation was over. But Carol, she stayed in Montana. She actually stayed there for 57 days and had to quit her job even, and she did everything she could to find that dog. She said, I just got sick to my stomach. It was devastating. So her first search for the dog snowballed and said, again, into days. King eventually found the incredibly malnourished Katie, who was very de- dehydrated in a starvation mode by way of a tip from somebody in, in uh, Kalispell, Montana. And she found the dog September 15th. I even have a little uh, video file where it was on where she's re- returning home to her home in Washington in the car and the dog and dog gets super excited as they pull in the driveway and then he they, the, the dog sees you know the husband and there's this great rejoicing and happiness on the everyone's part it's very touching so but here we see this emphasis on the responsibility and this faithfulness of finding that which was valuable and important There was much joy in heaven, and there's joy in community when a sheep is found. So back to our scene where Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees, it's as if if Jesus is saying, "I, I pay the price, I pursue them, and when I bring them back, you now come complaining to me because I'm a faithful shepherd? You see, what offends you here below on the earth, Pharisees, is what is causing rejoicing in the heavens. These sinners and tax collectors are at the table and, and, and they're hearing me. In fact, the Pharisees' negativity to what's going on actually indicates the condition of their soul. And there's a self-righteousness there that allows them to not participate in the meal, not participate in the fellowship or the hospitality. In fact, stand separate from it and be complaining. <laughs> Remember Michael, I mentioned this when we studied David and Michael. She's looking down from her room and she sees Michael in the streets dancing and uh, moving about and, you know, singing and everything, looking like a fool, she thought, as they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of Jerusalem. And she thought that was a disgrace. She didn't understand that joy and that spontaneity there. She was like these Pharisees. Well, the reason for the celebration is to honor the good shepherd, and to rejoice with them. He's the hero of the story. He was faithful. He pursued. He searched. He found his sheep and is united with his sheep. And he's the good shepherd and an honorable shepherd. You know, God likens himself to a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, verse 15 through 16, we read, I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them into judgment. So notice in this story, there's lost sheep that the Lord himself in Ezekiel 34 finds and heals. 
Boy, that'd be like the sinners and tax collectors. And then he mentions there are the fat and the strong sheep that he will destroy and feed them with judgment. Well, that would be the Pharisees. So there's a lot of joy. Lots of salvation joy. Joy in the heart of the person that's found. Joy in the person who does the finding. We can see that there's a joy with others when they hear how someone was found. And there's community joy. There's joy in heaven when we see one who is found. But there's no joy stated about the 99. They're standing separate. The story then goes on in verse 7 to clarify. Jesus clarifies then the theological point and the significant point. What is going on with repentance? Remember in verse 7 he says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now a comparison is giving one sinner who repents, 99 just people who do not need repentance. Sinner, just people. Repent, did not repent. That's what we see as the comparison. And a theological lesson is given about repentance because apparently the one sheep repented. And we go, huh? They didn't do anything. The sheep didn't do anything, nothing, nada, except perhaps, you know, somehow he got lost or it got lost. There is not one meritorious work which the sheep completes, nothing. So how do we see repentance in this story? Well, Jesus is teaching, and we'll see it was all three stories. It'll come out even more clear. Repentance involves a willingness to be found. When you are found, you say, yes. The 99 have no need for repentance because they do not see themselves as lost. The Pharisees, they have self-righteousness blinding them to their identity, and they don't see the identity or the purpose of Jesus Christ either. That's what was their problem all along. They never understood who he was, never believed it. Therefore, it is not irresponsible then of the shepherd in the story to leave the 99. Those are the self-assured, self-righteous sheep that aren't even interested in the services of the shepherd. They are not willing to be found because they don't even see that they're lost, but they are lost, but they, they don't know it. And they're even thinking they're the opposite. So note the sharp contrast between the reaction of the friends and neighbors in the parable who are rejoicing with the shepherd and the scribes and Pharisees in real life who are offended at Jesus doing the same thing. It's as if, again, Jesus is saying, the shepherd who finds his sheep deliberately calls his friends' associates in to celebrate with him, and you are the friends and associates of this community, so like them, you should rejoice when I bring in a lost tax collector. Why are you not actually really one of the friends and associates? You're betraying your spiritual condition. You know, another comparison could be made in reference to Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus. I'm not going to read that whole story, but if you're familiar with it, he's a wee little man who was a sinner, a tax collector, and despised. He heard that Jesus was going to come through his town in Jericho. He really was curious. He wanted to just see him. So he, you know, because he's small and no one will probably help him, you know, have a vantage point, he climbs up in a sycamore tree. Now, a sycamore tree is the leafiest tree in the Middle East, and so there's lots of leaves. It's really where someone would go specifically if they didn't want to be found. He's just curious. And Jesus is going by, goes right underneath that tree randomly, no, not really, stops, looks up, and finds him and says, Zacchaeus, come on down, let's make haste, because today I'm going to have lunch at your house. And Zacchaeus 
he says yes. Not verbally in the passage, but he comes down quickly, and they all go to his house for have a wonderful feast. And he is a different man. Zacchaeus, he is spiritually regenerated. They go in and they have table fellowship together in Zacchaeus' home, another tax collector and sinners. And there is a crowd outside, not part of that fellowship, and they are grumbling and complaining, and they think they are better, and why is Jesus with them? And then inside Zacchaeus, he gives his famous speech where he reflects his repentance. It's now expressed evidence of his being found. He says, I will restore what I've cheated and I was all these good things. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And he adds that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that fits very well with the parable in Luke 15. What has happened to Zacchaeus? He was found. Now, we can summarize here by allowing the story to, again, to make observations and gain some theological viewpoint. Again, Eastern-style teaching means that they're creating use of simile, metaphor, and so forth, and they're not just illustrating the truth, but are teaching truth illustratively. And so they speak in pictures. It's different than a photo. A photo is an actual photo, a snapshot, uh, instantaneous, point-blank period of time, very reality-based. That's why it's often used in courtrooms, etc., legal facts. Paintings, though, they're more colorful, more detailed. They are like stories. And when the painting, you can stand in front of a painting and look at it for a long time and make all sorts of observations. There's shadows and colors and all sorts of things. And so these stories, these parables are more like paintings and we want to observe and, and draw out of it. So let's review. What is it that Jesus is teaching here? The sheep? Well, those are the sinners and tax collectors, the, the, the sheep. The shepherd is God, obviously, or Jesus, Jesus. The friends that are rejoicing are friends of God and Jesus. That would imply fellow believers or angels, whatever. The 99 sheep, well, those would be the Pharisees. Why the search? Because of the faithfulness of the shepherd, the hero of the story who faithfully pursues. And why the celebration? To give honor, to honor the hero of the story and rejoice with him. Now, we see then that from point some uh, application sinners therefore are to be pursued that's not what the shepherds of Israel were doing the Pharisees though there is joy when one is found the self-righteous though are not part of that joy they don't understand that kind of joy and repentance that involves a willingness to be found in this story is it odd the shepherd would leave the 99 in the field no because uh, they are the ones who don't even need or aren't willing to be found. When that sheep is found, they, he doesn't go back to the field like we said, but he takes them to the house and it speaks of fellowship and joy. And we have one sheep with a shepherd. So just like in the story summary, one sinner who repents versus 99 who need no repentance. The one sinner is the one sheep that was found and the 99, they can be ignored because they're not willing to be found. Boy, how personal is this? What did that sheep do? What did that sheep do to be rescued or saved? It was found. That's all. So the picture shows us something that is lost and then gets found. Reminds me of the song Reckless Love, which is 
been popular here the past year or two or whatever, but oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And this love is understood as reckless, not in a negative way, but in the sense of the passion that is going to be effort that's going to be put forth. No, uh, at all costs, the cost and the death of Jesus Christ. He'll go to that extent. And on a human perspective, we say, oh, that's just too much. I don't get it. That's this amazing love of God. We don't earn it and we don't deserve it. And it's overwhelming. And the bridge, it goes on to say, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. His love is not based on merit. So also, allow yourself to be found. All your hesitations that one might have stem from a sense of merit. But that's not his love and that's his ways are not our ways. So there's something here for you as we finish up. For one who is not a Christian yet, he will take you on his shoulders and bring you to his home and to enjoy fellowship and community with him forever. Just be found. Knowing he loves you as you are, not as you should be. Jesus has paid the price at Calvary. And now you can be found. And he'll put you on his shoulders and you can have his life forever. Are you willing to be found? You need only to answer yes. And for the Christian hearing this, may we rejoice with him, our shepherd and our savior, because of his great honor, because he finds more and more sheep. And we too at one time were found and placed on his shoulders and brought to his home and have tasted fellowship. And we belong there now. We too are loved with this non-merit-based love and we belong to him no matter our performance. What a cause for celebration. May we rejoice with the shepherd. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for your reckless love. Reckless in the sense of the passionate pursuit you make and the high price you'll pay to find lost sinners, the very death of your son. Those who have rebelled, sinners, those who have gone astray or are mired in self-righteousness, you love us all unconditionally. And your love is not merit-based, and it's constant, available, and empowering. And so your love was demonstrated at the cross where Jesus died for us. Every last one of us, for our sins. Every last sin. So we thank you. We now know that Jesus is alive, and we can have life in him and through him by just believing how you loved us, and you've proven it by his death and resurrection. So we pray Father, that all will believe in him now, even today. Simple faith, no merit, no works, no pledges, no rituals, and best of all, no doubts, because Jesus did it all and has paid it all, and our salvation never relies on us. It relies on him. Thank you that we can be the one, <laughs> that one, the one you find, place on your shoulder and take home. Thank you as believers, we are that one, and we have this life and potential before us. So we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you are so moved, please like our podcast on your platform. 
and share it with others. That would be most appreciated. Remember, we also have devotional questions for each episode. Just email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. And remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.